0: A very warm welcome, very, very warm welcome to all souls this morning. It's a real encouragement to see you all here. Thank you so much for coming. I want to particularly start by thanking those who've set this place up. I don't know whether you realize, but uh, last night there was a Fat Fish concert in here, so there were no chairs, there was smoke machines and uh, lighting rigs and all kinds of things, and there were some people who slaved away till the early hours to get this place ship shaped for this morning. So I think if you could give them a round of applause just to thank them. They've done an amazing job. Well, I hope you have Jeremiah 29 in front of you. That won't be our only port of call, but it's the place to start. And um, also, you'll find an outline if you want to take notes, but certainly an outline in the booklets for what I want to say this morning. After years of bush warfare... Yaori Museveni became Uganda's president in 1986. And for better, for worse, he has been in power ever since. And when we lived in Uganda, I read his memoirs, Sowing the Mustard Seed, which is a very intriguingly biblical title for a memoir. And Christians had clearly had quite an impact on him, certainly in his early years. And yet his discomfort with these Christians' teaching grew both as he grew and as his uh, understanding grew. And in his words, he said this, These people appeared to want to use religion subtly to induce a kind of meekness in the face of oppression. Meekness meant obeying authority. Some of them would tell us that we should not get involved in politics because it was worldly. He goes on. It seemed to me that they were preaching that if you were poor here on earth, you shouldn't worry because you'll be rewarded in heaven. And to my way of thinking, this was very, very dangerous. It was misleading people, telling them not to worry about their own welfare and to transfer all this to God. And so that is how I eventually broke with them. My differences came to a head in 1965 during a Scripture Union conference And I introduced a motion to denounce Ian Smith's unilateral declaration of independence in Rhodesia, and my motion was dubbed political and worldly, and therefore disallowed. Their leaders overlooked altogether the moral issues of the Rhodesian situation as if they were conscious agents for subduing the fight for justice. I believe they were honest men, but they were imprisoned by their beliefs. Now, who knows what uh, reasons were there that for them doing that. I can quite imagine, uh, knowing what it's like to organize a conference, I, know, I can quite imagine that they disallowed Museveni's motion because of a tight schedule. I know what it's like. No, we don't have time for that. But Museveni's perceptions as a young man were very clear, and he had seen that these people had a track record of regarding politics as worldly. I can't help wondering how different things might have been if his concerns had been taken seriously then. For it illustrates, I think, a failure to be integrated. Whatever the reasons, these leaders had a reluctance or even an inability to let Sunday beliefs fully revolutionize Monday lives. That's what this day is all about. Since the Bible is our indispensable foundation, we're going to start the day by seeing how the Bible helps us to do this. And we're going to study uh, two contexts today, one from the Old and the other, more briefly, from the New Testament. And I've called it a tale of two cities, but I could equally have called it a tale of two churches, because in the Greek Old Testament translation, the Septuagint, the word often used for the gathering of God's people was ecclesia means called out, which is the word the New Testament uses for the church. But these two churches are separated by half a millennium or so and vastly different circumstances. Yet the impact of these churches on their societies would be remarkable, but only if they lived integrated lives. The church in Babylon didn't want to be there. It was the last place they wanted to be, in fact. They were captives, exiled in an alien culture. But as we'll see, God had plans for them, even there. And the church in Corinth, well, they were home. It was their home. They'd been born and brought up there. But they were converts, called out of their native culture. Not that they were to necessarily leave it. But that God had a very clear agenda for them. In their context at home, to be very different from those around them at home. Well, let's see then. Let's launch straight into Babylon and see what we find. Jeremiah 29, uh, captives exiled uh, exiles in an alien culture. Uh, the date is around 594 BC. Nebuchadnezzar has conquered Jerusalem just two or three years before. Uh, he had deported Judah's king. Dragged him and his household over to Babylon. And you can see that in verse 2 of our passage. He's imposed his own puppet king, Zedekiah. Although he's been very shrewd and ensured that Zedekiah is descended from King David. So at least his bloodline is right, even if his loyalties aren't. So let's be clear. The second wave... Of the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem is not yet here. That's a few years off. We're in that funny limbo sort of decade or so in between the two. And not much has changed. Jerusalem stands, the temple stands, the house of David still reigns. Not much has changed, except for that sort of minor detail that Judah is ruled by a pagan empire a thousand miles away. That's slightly inconvenient. When will God sort that out? Poor old Jeremiah. He's in a tough situation. He has a very awkward letter to write. I guess, I don't know about you, before a difficult email or a letter, you can sort of have sleepless nights thinking about how you're going to phrase it and everything else. I guess Jeremiah had to think long and hard how he's going to write this one. This is a tricky letter. So verse 1, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem. So there he is in Jerusalem. To the surviving elders and all the gang who were dragged over to Babylon. And then verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, I wonder if you spot this, first of all. Two individuals are responsible for the exile. Two. In verse 2, it's Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, he's responsible for the exile. It was his idea. But look in verse 4, it is Yahweh, the Lord God, who took them into exile. Both at the same time. You see, this is no sort of geopolitical accident. This is official divine policy. Now that is unsettling. God dragging the people to Babylon. But Jeremiah was nothing if not consistent. Judah deserved the exile. He'd been saying this. God could not be blamed for the unrelenting disregard of his warnings. But then it gets weirder. And here's the sort of first subheading. Get real and get stuck in. You see, there were Jews in Jerusalem and in Babylon who had their suspicions about Jeremiah. I wonder, uh, you see, many people thought that he was a spy, that he was in the pay of Babylon. I-, I wonder if you remember hearing about Lord Haw-Haw in World War II. Uh, William Joyce was a British Nazi sympathizer who beamed demoralizing messages from Germany throughout the war to try and sort of disrupt uh, and uh, uh, unsettle sort of the British determination to fight. After the war, he was eventually caught and hanged at Nuremberg. Well, some people thought that Jeremiah was the ancient Jewish equivalent, working for the enemy to decrease morale. And you can see why. Look at verse six uh, verse five. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives, give your daughters a marriage, they have sons and daughters, increase in number, do not decrease. Seems harmless enough, but do you see where this is going? He's saying, look, guys, just go with the flow. This is the way it is. Babylon is boss now. Uh, There's not a lot you can do about it. Just deal with it. Just accept it. It's reality. Just get used to it. So build your houses in Babylon. Give your children in marriage in Babylon. Make the best of it in Babylon. Babylon. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Do you hear the echoes there of Genesis 1 and 2 and the the mandate to go, go forth and multiply? Well, here it is. God's people told to do that in enemy territory. God would never say that, surely. So why is Jeremiah saying it? He must be working for them. Is he a traitor? I mean, some other prophets insisted that Jeremiah was wrong. Back in chapter 28, you'll see the heading there is entitled The False Prophet Hananiah. Uh, uh, So he's there, and by the end of 29, we find Shemaiah, these two uh, prophets, to name but two. They were around in Jerusalem and Babylon. They were saying things like, don't unpack the freight. We'll be home in two years. It'll be fine. See how Jeremiah responds. Look at verse 8. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them. Out after two years for good behavior? Who are you kidding? Lies and fantasies. And what's the worst thing? Do you see there? These are dreams you encourage them to have. It's classic. False teachers only teach what will draw a crowd of itching ears. And God's prophets only teach what pleases God despite the crowd. But Jeremiah is no traitor. He had no love for Babylon. By the time you get to Jeremiah 50, he looks forward to its downfall. He is no Lord Haw-Haw. He writes, because the exile was not the result of Babylon's power, but God's. There's absolutely no point resisting it. But it's more than passive acceptance. This is the extraordinary thing. God tells his people to embrace their God-given situation. He says, get involved, live life. This is God-inspired prophecy, not Babylon-funded treachery. He says, live life. Live it to the full. Bear that in mind when you look at verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, imagine you first heard that verse out of context. Which city would you imagine he was talking about? My guess is uh, you would instinctively think it was a very different city. Let me give you a clue. This is from Psalm 122. And the psalmist says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be with you and within you. That word peace, it's that wonderful Hebrew word shalom. has a wide semantic range. It's a very rich word. There's no word in English that remotely gets close. It it, it means peace, certainly. But it also is health, prosperity, general well-being, But then comes the grenade. These exiles are not to pray for their true home, but their imposed home. Babylon, not Jerusalem. And what's more, remember, remember what the false prophets would be going around saying all the time? They went around saying, peace, peace, shalom, shalom. And Jeremiah has to say, where there is no shalom. Because Jerusalem had been under the judgment of God. So I don't think we fully grasp the bombshell of verse 7. It would have been a staggering verse. I can quite imagine that, that Jeremiah's quill was trembling as he wrote that verse. Uh, John Calvin summed it up brilliantly. He said this Here, the Israelites plundered of all their property, torn from their homes, driven into exile, thrown into miserable bondage, are ordered to pray for the prosperity of the victor. Not as we elsewhere are ordered to pray for our persecutors, no, but that the victor's kingdom may be preserved in safety and tranquility and that they too may live prosperously under him. Do you see the scandal of that? I mean, how subversive can you get? If you just turn over the page, you'll see I've given a a sort of brief uh, overview of of how Babylon is, the sort of connotations of Babylon throughout the Bible. And um, I won't go through them all now, but I'll leave them for you to look at in your own time. But it's fascinating, isn't it? They're not exactly positive connotations. And and they go back as far as Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, or as it perhaps should be translated, the Tower of Babylon. And in Jeremiah's day, Babylon was an aggressively imperialist power immersed in idolatry and inhumanity, and their ambitions to dominate the known world knew no bounds. In short, Babylon was the enemy, culturally spiritually, politically. What is God playing at? At the very least, it means that you can live for God, uh, you can obey God, you, you can have shalom outside His promised land, doesn't it? All their Jewish securities, their cultural safety nets, everything that indicated order in this crazy world was stripped from them. And yet, God is saying... Hang in there. You can still live for me. You can face reality, whatever it throws at us. You can You can have shalom. You don't need the city or the temple or political autonomy. I am still Yahweh, the Lord. So keep working, but keep the faith. Uh, This is not to say that life in Babylon was going to be easy. Uh, Jeremiah transforms their perspective, however. Look at verse 10. This is what Yahweh says, the Lord. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come back to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen. the exile will not last two years, but 70. The false teachers insisted that Jeremiah's was a counsel of despair. After all, you can hold on for two years, but 70? I'll be dead by then. Even though historically, of course, the exile would not last that long, it's clear that 70 is a deliberately round number, three score years and ten. The classic stereotypical human life. In other words, Jeremiah is simply saying this exile will last a lifetime. And then it'll stop. Now, do you see how that makes sense of Jeremiah's letter? If it's all going to last a lifetime, then, well, don't mope around. Jolly, well, live life. Many of you will die in exile. So don't hang around waiting for rescue. Don't follow the totally useless advice of the false prophets. Live your lives to the full which is where that wonderful verse in verse 11 comes in. God has plans for his people in exile. That's a classic verse, isn't it, for yanking out of context. Um, I've been given that verse, and I've appreciated being given that verse, uh, and it's wonderful. God has plans. That's wonderful. How often you know, are we told that God knows who they'll marry or told that their business won't fail because someone has shared this verse? I don't know. Too often, probably. No. These plans that God has are simple, Shalom for exiled Israel when they're rescued and brought home. That is his majestic plan. In the midst of the chaos and pain and confusion of exile, God is still sovereign. I'm not saying that God has no interest in our individual lives. Far from it. Of course he does. But this verse applies individually, only indirectly. It is about God's Supreme, cosmic, sovereign purposes in which we can rest. Uh, There are strong parallels between these two sections in, in the letter. In the first, the exiles are called on to pray for Shalom, for Babylon. Then in verses 12 and 13, they're to do exactly the same for themselves. And that is the condition for their homecoming, that they come and pray in verse 12, and in verse 13, they seek God himself. And by seeking God, they'll receive shalom, well-being, trusting in God and his purposes. And when that happens, all is well. Circumstances might not change, but my perspective does. In recent years, I've noticed how many friends have increasingly shown concern about a sense of growing hostility to the Christian faith in particular in this country. And I'm sure you're well aware of that. In fact, I know that for many of you, actually your workplaces can be very challenging places indeed, even hostile places. And perhaps this is something that 20, 30, 40 years ago just wouldn't have been the case. And it's certainly true that that many of the cultural assumptions of our our Christian past in this country have been eroded and have disappeared. You can't deny it. You don't need me to give you examples. But I do sometimes wonder whether or not we need to get real and stop indulging in nostalgia for a bygone age and perhaps even a fantasy about a bygone age. Because remember, remember, You cannot get more hostile or antagonistic than Babylon. And yet God placed his people there in the heat of it with a purpose, to pray for Babylon's shalom, the enemy. But isn't it the case that whenever you pray earnestly for a project, you instinctively and inevitably get actively involved in that project and so to pray for shalom in babylon inevitably leads to working for shalom in babylon and that's not about retreating into a spiritual ghetto and, and waiting for the exiles to, ha- uh, to the exile to end you know sort of batten down the hatches and wait for the second coming this is about being stuck in living out a sabbath faith on weekdays to bring about shalom I wonder, what do you pray for your workplaces? What do you pray for the outcome of your work? For your colleagues and bosses, for your mockers and even persecutors? What do you pray for them? Is it God's shalom? There were people who famously did just that in in Babylon, of course. One of the most famous was the prophet Daniel. Classy example, he served the empire, this enemy empire, as a top-flight civil servant, despite his ethnicity. And he sought to be an influence for good, and he sought to have spiritual integrity amidst an oppressive regime. It came at a great cost. He had to draw lines in the sand, personally, and in all ways ethical and edifying, however, he sought the shalom of his city and his people. He clearly took Jeremiah 29 seriously but I think another great figure the greatest figure does the same the Lord Jesus I think he has a similar approach in the New Testament remember Israel then was enduring another aggressive empire as well It wasn't Babylon this time it was now Rome and Jesus's was not a sort of lie down as a doormat ethic as some caricature it to be. In some ways, it could be summarized as a Shalom for Babylon ethic as well. And what else does he mean in that Sermon on the Mount passage by talking about being salt and light in the world? Uh, This is how Uncle John, John Stott, put it in his Bible Speaks Today commentary and preached from this very spot in the past he said this salt and light have one thing in common they give and expend themselves and they are the opposite of any and every kind of self-centered religiosity nevertheless the kind of service each renders is different in fact their effects are complementary the function of salt is largely negative it prevents decay the function of light is positive it illumines the darkness So Jesus calls his disciples to exert a double influence on the secular community. It's one thing to stop the spread of evil. It's another thing to promote the spread of truth, beauty, goodness, and dare I say, shalom. Putting the two metaphors together, it seems legitimate to discern in them the proper relation between evangelism and social action in the total mission of Christ in the world a relation which perplexes many believers today, but we are called to be both salt and light to the secular community. It's about spreading God's shalom far and wide because that is the best thing any life could possibly have. Of course, that shalom is ultimately found in the Lord Jesus himself. The one who brings peace with God, as Paul writes in Colossians, he brought peace with God. And in Christ, he destroys the barriers of human hostility and division. Man is the world divided. You name it, we find things to divide over. And then think of more. In Christ, the dividing wall of hostility is broken down. You can see that in Ephesians 2. So we long for people to know him and his shalom. We'll come back to this. But if we seek people's eternal welfare, and I hope we do, how can we not seek their temporal welfare as well? It's not one or t'other, but both. It is shalom from now until eternity. But to see how we do this, I want to travel 600 years or so in time to a very different part of the world, because this is Corinth. Not an imperial capital this time, but a gritty double port city. Uh, at its uh, narrowest part, the Isthmus of Corinth is only about uh, six miles from, from one side to the other. And of course now there's a canal uh, linking the two sides. But uh, you know we all know what port cities are like. <laughs> this was a double port city, so I suppose it's port city squared. But just as surprising as finding a church in Babylon... Is finding a church in Corinth. You'd never expect that. And I think when we feel perhaps overwhelmed or discouraged in our own society, perhaps feeling surrounded or hounded or whatever it is, we should never forget this. There was a body of believers in Corinth. That in itself, as we'll see in a moment, is a miracle. integrated in Corinth, converts called out of their native culture, not to leave, but to be different. I've often thought that London is one of the closest contemporary equivalents to ancient Corinth. London is my home city. I was born two miles away from where we're standing. This is my center of gravity. These are my roots. I love this city, but I have to say, time and time again, I recognize Corinth in it on every street in all kinds of ways. Uh, This was confirmed by an article I recently read, a friend lent me, uh, by Professor Anthony Thistleton. And he describes Corinth, the Corinth of Paul's day, as a busy, bustling, cosmopolitan business center. Could describe London, couldn't it? But then he identifies a number of features of Corinth that then get reflected in the Corinthian church. And I've picked some of them up uh, on the the table on the sheets. You can see that there. I'm not going to go through all the details. Um, And in his article, he identifies some of them uh, from 1 Corinthians, and I've just tried to have a bash at identifying some uh, the same things in 2 Corinthians. You can look through those in your own time at some point. But the three main uh, issues that he identifies amongst others uh, a, a real sort of competitive streak, a, a, a desire, an obsession almost with self-promotion, self-congratulation, success being the idol, and being seen to be successful. And then another thing that was identified about Corinth is that they were fiercely proud of their own sort of culture, fiercely independent-minded, desperate for autonomy. In other words, they didn't like people from outside coming to them tell them things. People like Paul. And that's led to great intellectual pride about people who didn't understand the way they think. And then finally, an obsession with rhetoric and image just the impression rather than the substance and the truth. They do sound familiar, wouldn't you say? Isn't this London? Well, from their calling from God, they are not to be escaping from the world around them. Far from it. They are to be in it. They are to be salt and light in it, which means being different from it. And Paul has two home truths, I think, uh, as we turn over the page. Uh, Two home truths that they need to understand about what it means they now are as part, not just of this local uh, sort of unique autonomous body in Corinth, but part of this global whole. They're part of something bigger. And the first is clear from verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians. So please turn over to 2 Corinthians. I should have asked you to do that before. And the page is 1161, 1161 if you're using an all-souls Bible. Here in chapter 5, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul says, be reconciled, because you have been reconciled By God in Christ. Uh, One New Year's Eve at the uh, famous Garrett Club just down the road... Uh, British dramatist Frederick Lonsdale was asked by a friend to reconcile with another club member. Uh, they had quarreled in the past, and their friendship had never been restored, and this feud had gone on for years. And they were both sort of you know, leading lights in the, in the Garrick at the time, and so you know, everybody was aware. So, so one New Year's Eve, uh, a friend called Hicks said to Lonsdale, look, you must, uh, you must reconcile. It, it's very unkind to be unfriendly at such a time. New Year's Eve... Go over and wish him a happy new year. So Lonsdale crossed the smoking room and spoke to his enemy. I wish you a happy new year, sir, he said, but only one. (laughs) Now that's not exactly reconciliation, is it? Now you may think reconciliation with God, unnecessary, after all. What's the big deal? Millions around the world, so we're told, are seeking God. Reconciliation, well, that's needed after traumas like genocide or conflict. It requires mediators and counselors, magistrates and negotiators. And I dare say some of you are involved in reconciliation work. But what about with God? Well, look at verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Christ not counting men's sins against them. Now that will never make sense until we sin see sin not as a bad doing bad things but as about living as rebels. Even if we're respectable. In fact, <laughs> respectable and professional are things that simply compound the problem by making us think we're better than everybody else. The middle-class disease, the disease of superiority. And the reason we're all the same is actually that we all find different ways to do the same thing, to live without allegiance, dependence, even gratitude to God. We like our own lives just the way they are. We are in charge. Now, that's fine, you might think, but when we make that unilateral declaration of independence from God... We break off from the one who knows us, who made us, who sustains us, above all, who owns us, the creator God. You see, sin is personal. A a relationship has broken down, and when a relationship breaks down, the only hope for a positive future is forgiveness, reconciliation. Now, for God, you see, reconciliation might be a lovely idea, but it's never an easy idea. Uh, Not everyone agrees with this, of course, and I quote this with the greatest of respect, but this is what the Quran says about how to deal with the wrongdoing in our lives. And as for those who believe and do good works, we shall remit from them their evil deeds and shall repay them the best they did. In other words, the way to deal with the wrongdoing in your life is just to do lots more good. Now that's all well and good perhaps, but but can we honestly say that we can do enough to counterbalance our evil deeds? Will that ever be enough? What about the victims of our deeds? What about the consequences of our deeds? Uh, Those deeds, uh, consequences that can never be undone. What of those we've trampled en route up the career ladder or those we've exploited through our business deals? What about them? What are those people we've put out of business? But most importantly, what about the one we've sinned against? The God whom we've rejected. Is it simply enough for us to pull our socks up and say to God, don't worry God, I promise not to do it again. For you know you know as well as I do that we don't get it right all of the time. In fact, we don't get it right most of the time. In our home lives, in our work lives. Which is why it comes as a huge relief and indeed an unbelievable surprise that the God we rejected is also the God who reconciles us. The one who is hated and who had every right to, uh, to, to, to reject us takes the initiative to reconcile us. And that couldn't be clearer from verses 18 and 19, could it? Paul is ramming the point home. This is God's idea, which is just as well, because without it, we would be stumped. I love this from G.K. Chesterton, the famous... Uh, brilliant writer of Father Brown, as well as many other things, and he summed it up brilliantly. He said this, We do not want a religion that is right where we are right. We want a religion that is right where we are wrong. You see, where we are wrong, we are really wrong. And we cannot change our past. We cannot turn over new leaves reliably. We cannot do enough good to restore us to God's good books. The miracle is that he does it for us. But how? Look at verse 19. We see there God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Then comes verse 21, the most startling and I suggest even most disturbing verse of the whole Bible. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now just stop there for a moment. Mull those words over in your minds. Let them sink in. They demand an awed silence. I wonder if you ever saw the film The Last Emperor, about the last emperor of China. An amazing film. This young child is anointed the, the, the emperor of China. He lives a life of magical luxury with a thousand eunuch, eunuch servants at his beck and call. Just he clicked his finger and they act. And he's talking to his brother one day. Do you remember this bit? And his brother asks, what happens when you do something wrong? The boy emperor replies, when I do wrong, someone else is punished. To demonstrate, he breaks a jar and one of his servants is beaten. That's not right. There's something profoundly unjust about that, isn't there? But verse 21 is even more shocking because actually the pattern is reversed. Instead of servants being punished for the king's wrongdoings, it's actually the king who's punished for the servant's wrongdoings. What other king in history has ever done that? Now, some get concerned by this, and it's understandable. There's been a lot of uh, discussion about this. It does seem immoral and unjust. This is not the place to go into detail. I can just recommend John Stott's masterpiece, The Cross of Christ, which is on sale over there, especially chapter 6 entitled The Self-Substitution of God. But let me be clear. This is all God's initiative. Jesus is fully God. He's not dragged in, kicking and screaming. He is party to this plan. He is no unwilling victim. Furthermore, Jesus identifies so fully with you and me that the sinless one takes on our sin. The king became our very sin in himself so that we could become the righteousness of God. In other words, in a perfect relationship with God. And this is shocking. It means that when God sees the Lord Jesus on the cross, he saw him as the world's worst rebel against heaven. And he faced the consequences. But that's how reconciliation was possible. He did it on our behalf. And this little idea is the bloodstream of the passage. That same little Greek word we translate on behalf of or for comes six times. Just look at verse 14. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Then verse 15. He died for, on behalf of, all. Live for him who died for them. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, on behalf of, in place of. He loved those who hated him in the most costly, staggering way imaginable. Are you not lost for words? I humbly suggest you should be. How on earth do we respond to that? How on earth can we respond to that? A love that loves with no bounds. A love that loves those who hate. And what has this got to do with our professional lives? Well, the shalom we seek for our city can only flow out of the shalom we've received from Christ. So finally, be ambassadors. Because you now serve The kingdom of God. Uh, How God wants us to respond is fleshed out in verse 19. God has committed to us, therefore, the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. Now, the metaphor of an ambassador is ingenious. In the ancient world, an ambassador reflected the status of the person he represented. If a significant power is represented, you treated that person with care because it was not worth risking offense. It's not so different now. Ambassadors carry huge responsibilities, and only the most trusted are given the job. It is a high office. So, who could remotely qualify for being Christ's ambassador? Do you qualify? The extraordinary thing is, God is not fussy about who he loves. Have you noticed that? That's why you're here. His reconciling love is on offer to anyone and everyone, regardless of family, criminal status, education, race, looks, bank balance. And he's not fussy about who he'll use as his ambassadors either. Seems rather reckless, doesn't it? But that's God all through. Any rebel who has been reconciled is also commissioned as the King of Kings, high representative to the human race. It's incredible. Almost as mind blowing as his enemy loving grace. Now, all things kind of follow from this. An ambassador has to be on message, doesn't he? Or she. It's not the his or her own message that is important. It's the message of the king. Notice that in verse 19. He's committed to us the message of reconciliation, of bringing shalom. But with the message must come a lifestyle to match. You see, this isn't just about evangelism. This is about Everything. Can you imagine the headlines if a British ambassador abroad was caught curb crawling or exposed for taking bribes? It would look terrible. How much more is the case when we Christian ambassadors live lives that simply do not bear any resemblance to the kingdom values we profess to represent? It looks terrible. And yet, isn't that one of our biggest problems? We are, dare I say it, hypocrites. Especially in the area of being reconciled with one another. We're not very good at that. We claim to be reconciled with God, but our day-to-day church life very often looks to the outside world no different, sometimes worse, than the petty rivalries and power games of the office. But knowing that we've been called to be ambassadors to speak on Christ's behalf, just as Paul does with the Corinthians, is a huge challenge. So he says in verse 18, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then there's a parallel for verse 18, a ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, a message of reconciliation. Something to say, a way of life to live. We need both, hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. This involves an integrity, a wholeness, a completedness, a consistency, a life of shalom that flows out of a message of shalom. So I hope that we see God's purposes for shalom are not just for Babylon or Corinth or indeed London. It's for the whole world to be brought to a full restoration to well-being and right relationship with him. And that ultimately entails reconciliation with him. It can't do without that. Through the gospel of Christ. And reconciliation with one another. Can't do that without that either. Again, through God's people being transformed by the gospel of Christ. Our mandate, our calling, our longing is to be ambassadors for that purpose. In whatever walk of life we find ourselves, whether politics, arts, business, social work, church work, retail work, healthcare, whatever, you name it, I'm sure I've missed you out. We have no excuse. We must pray for, act for, bring about shalom, temporally and eternally. That is what God has called us to. Now how we do that is, of course, a huge challenge. And I'm very loath to generalize because I know that different professions, different walks of life have all kinds of unique difficulties. But that's, of course, why we've got networks to go to after the break. So we can begin to think, to tease out, to to learn from one another, to talk. And, of course, the networks are having lunch. uh, The lunch is provided in your network so that you can talk and just share Wisdom to help us do this. But we can be sure of this. If we are Christ's, we all share the same calling. It's an exciting calling. It's a wonderful calling, if not a little intimidating. Seek the shalom and welfare of the city in which you live by living out the gospel of Christ as ambassadors of Christ, by being salt and light in a world even if it is hostile let's pray heavenly father we praise and thank you for who you are and for who we are in Christ may we relish and love the wonder of what you have done And may we walk day by day to be ministers and messengers of shalom. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.